Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday Shushan Purim. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Hope you enjoyed your Purim. Yep, with the shovel and all. Yeah, boy. Even you have to shovel, huh? Even I. You'd think with the stature you've attained that you'd have somebody else shovel, but you insist on getting out there and taking care of it yourself. And to all those who stop to take pictures, please <laughs> burn them. No one would believe it anyway, Malcolm. Come on. That's what they say. <laughs> Everybody holds by my theory. Uh, all right, we start with what happened this morning in Jerusalem, uh, another terror attack, one of these uh, car rammings which injured five. Thank God it seems none of them considered to be uh, serious injuries. What do we know about this morning's attack? The guy was from East Jerusalem, and uh, it does appear to be a terrorist attack, though it hasn't been formally identified as such. Um, and the most important statement was Barkat's reaction that everything go ahead, and the police said they can handle it, and the celebrations of Purim, as you know, because it's Jerusalem and uh, Walled City, it's it's a day later, and the um, uh, celebrations, Adu Yada's celebrations are continuing unabated. Uh, it's interesting. I read an article about this attack early this morning on the air, and a listener called after I read uh, a sentence from this article and said, were you reading from the New York Times? I said, why do you think I was reading from the New York Times? In fact, I was reading from the Jerusalem Post. Because at the end of the article, it says the incident took place in an area that late last year was a flashpoint for violence between Israelis and Palestinians when a series of vehicular attacks left three people dead and around a dozen wounded. Isn't that a little bit of a misrepresentation of those attacks in Jerusalem? Certainly say so. Uh, takes the world a long time to catch up, but uh, and and uh, this attempt to equalize everything, everything, and to share blame when there is no blame on the Israeli side. I just saw the UN yesterday came out and and, and identified the Hardov attack in January, in which two Israeli soldiers were killed. Now they just say it was a violation of Resolution 1701, which was adopted after the 2006 war in Lebanon. So two months later, they finally have identified it as a violation. There's no consequence. There's no punishment. There's no real condemnation. Um, but, but at the time, they couldn't see that it was a violation immediately. And I think that it's reflective of the kind of coverage and, and the, the, the attempt to uh, always put Israel in the worst possible light. Yeah. But thank God the American people see through it, see through all of the stuff they did this week, the polls that we're seeing now are really quite remarkable on the issue of Iran. Uh, we have uh, three or four polls that have come in from Israel and from the United States, and uh, I'm sure you've seen some of them, but it's really remarkable when 84% of Americans say allowing Iran to get a nuclear weapon uh, in 10 years is a bad idea, yeah. and, that, and that the majority of Americans, like two-thirds, favored the U.S. taking even military action against Iran if that was the only way to stop them. Uh, I do, I'm just going to point that one more time, that we were referring to the Jerusalem Post in this article, which, uh, you know, you, you'd think they'd know better, but okay, I think the point is you now... You mean that you would not be reading the New York Times, right? No, 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 that's not what I meant. <laughs> You're lucky it's Purim. If it wasn't Purim, I wouldn't let you get away with that line. Uh, <laughs> a little Purim spiel aimed at Nahum Siegel. Anyway, um, 
the, the, the only poll, frankly, that really caught my attention yesterday, and we'll wait a few minutes before we discuss it in depth, was the 24 seats each for Labor and BB. That was a little shocking in light of the speech, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Malcolm, I can't get past this. We had, we had a show on, um, uh, we did on the stream and preempted everything right before the speech. We did analysis right after the speech, which was really well received, and I could not get off the point that with everything that was going on, all the details that need to be discussed regarding BB's speech at the joint session of Congress, I can't get past the fact, thankfully, that a prime minister of a sovereign, independent, strong state of Israel shows up in Washington, D.C. a few decades after World War II, and knowing what our history is, and is received the way he was. And I even posted on Facebook as the speech was going on, and I realized, you know, B.B. always ends with some type of drama. In this case, the, the pusuk he used was unbelievable, and the, and the dramatic piece at the end was fantastic. And I said, here it comes. I, as he started that segment, I wrote, here it comes. I wish every persecuted Jew in history could now hear the words he's about to say. Does that ever get old for you, that, that here the prime minister of Israel is being received in this way by the most important legislative body in the world? I was at all three of his and the other prime minister's uh, speeches before the joint sessions. This one obviously had the most drama and the build-up, and if, frankly, if the administration wanted to make sure that people paid attention to this speech, it probably was one of the most listened to or watched speeches in, in uh, certainly recent history, and the, the, then they couldn't have done a better job to promote it. True. And normally, if you would have announced a speech on Iran given in the joint session or anywhere else, it would have gotten minimal attention. So I think, uh, I must say, when I sit there, I think of the same thing. I think about what would have happened if in 38 people would have been able to do this, or 39, or what if Winston Churchill had been able to come before them, or the eyewitnesses who came out and knew what was going on and came to warn and to, it wouldn't have been, as B.B. said, not just the six million Jews saved, but the tens of millions more who, who were killed. And one of the things that was interesting and, and, and more significant, I think, than people picked up because of the rest of the issues, his reference to the Moses uh, depiction right. in the Congress. I don't know if the image of Moses overlooking the lawmakers. It's right in the middle. I happen to be sitting right below it. It, at the session, and it's directly opposite the speaker's platform. And and what's interesting, on either side are 11 profiles of great figures who affected American life, American law. And the they, the 11 on one side face left, and the 11 on the other side face right, all towards Moses in the center. And this is, I think, that the influence and the drama and the significance of the moment should not be lost on anyone. Unbelievable. Historically, it's just unbelievable. And you know what I mean, not just re- not just referring to World War II, but if every persecuted Jew who ever wondered, is, are things ever going to get better? Is there ever going to be a time that I could live freely, that I, that I could have a role in this world, that I could be respected as a person? If every one of those Jews could have heard that segment of the speech, it would have been amazing. Just incredible. Anyway. 
Uh, we go to the contents of the speech. So how did he do? Did he make the case well? I'm sure you thought a million times before the speech what approach he should use to actually influence the world through this uh, uh, through this speech about the dangers of Iran and its nuclear capabilities. Did he do a good job or not? I certainly think he laid out the issues, the concerns. You know, the, the president said there was nothing new, and Nancy Pelosi said it was insulting. It was neither insulting. There was new things. By the way, some surprising things, even in terms of the position he laid out, that BB did not ask for zero centrifuges. The implication of what he said was, in fact, that they would allow some uh, modest amount, because um, he said it can't be left with a vast body of nuclear equipment. Well, when you say vast rather than any, uh, he didn't explain it. He didn't explicate it. So I, but I think people picked up uh, on that aspect. But in terms of the New York Times point, certainly picked up on it. They had a whole analysis about it. Right. That later on, I'm saying at the moment. Right. Uh, it, uh, the the significance I think you see in the. That's why I think the polls are important to tell us not just how did the people in that room react. And I watched everybody. I could see virtually all the members and how some Democrats sat on their hands even on lines not related to the Iran issue, and, of course, that some absented themselves from the, from the hall. Um, and the, the, the fact that you had the provocations, the threats continue, that on the very day that he gives the speech, Iran is doing naval exercises where they do bombing runs at a mock-up of an American warship in the Persian Gulf. If that's not a message, and we, the fact that the administration didn't find time to condemn that and that others didn't make the connection between the message that they were sending, <coughs> and I have a whole slew of things that happened just in the last week of, of um, the statements from the IEA about the Iranians withholding key information, the blocking access, the... The, the, the developments on the ground, which we'll talk about Iraq, and et cetera, all of them are provocations, which shows that this is not a country interested in a partnership, in, interested in being a peaceful ally, and that while, uh, and I thought Netanyahu's line, that the enemy of your enemy is not your friend in this case, yeah. it's your enemy. Right. And that because they happen to, to be fighting ISIS, because in many cases they're supporting ISIS, in fact, but they're fighting ISIS because it's in their interest to take over Iraq. I thought also that, you know, people who expected him to go into the details of the negotiations, that was not going to happen. That would have been a violation. And you notice the Secretary of State and President warned against it. Uh, I thought he, he laid out, though, the framework and the, the contours uh, uh, in a way that make very clear a 10 years framework is not acceptable, and you see people now talking about it. And what he achieved, above all, is to put this issue back on the agenda. And I think members of Congress are not going to allow themselves to be sidelined in this debate anymore. At least I hope not. And I hope that they will work, that the administration and Congress will work together, because the only way you're going to get a real united approach of America to this singular threat he raised human rights issue. He, he showed that this is not just an Israel issue. And you, you saw the meeting between Kerry and the president, the king of Saudi Arabia, Salman, the new king, um, where he essentially reiterates the points that uh, Netanyahu made, the king, uh, of, uh, that is. And others, other leaders, uh, the same thing, that they were essentially endorsing the position without uh, 
saying as much. So positive response to the speech from Saudi Arabia. Any other Middle Eastern countries with positive reaction to the speech? Yes. A number of them have made, um, the UAE, others have made oblique statements. Look, nobody's going to come out and endorse right. uh, uh, the prime minister. But I think the biggest endorsement was the, the reaction of the American people. Uh, well, how Israelis react may be very different. As you point out, the polls now are 23-23. Oh, I was shocked. I was shocked that he didn't get... I mean, it, tell, it really tells us what's in the minds of the Israeli electorate. And by the way, for those who... For those who make the argument, you know, BB, uh, it's too little too late at this point. There's an inevitability of Iran having a nuclear bomb. I'll tell you, the reaction from, the, the reaction to those, uh, uh, to, to this speech by Israelis with the polls barely moving somewhat, uh, says that, I think, that, that Israel might believe that he's the best when it comes to security, but, but they're getting ready for a situation where they know that Iran's gonna have a bomb. Well, I think that the Israelis have been wrestling with this much longer and in more depth because obviously the threat is seen. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that the Israeli public doesn't react like most publics do, because if you if you see that their reaction to this speech on the security as a security speech, it was 46:39, uh, whether it was worth it, etc. But if you see the poll afterwards on who you could trust on Iran, Netanyahu at 41. And uh, and Herzog uh, six, Obama fifteen. Right, but it's not it's not the issue anymore. It's not the issue they're voting on anymore. Well, that's the point. They're voting still on domestic agenda. But I, I think that he successfully put the security issue up front now. Then why didn't he gain a couple of seats in the polls? Because you have to wait and see. As I told you often, you know. Israelis tell the truth to pollsters and lie at the polls. So 11 days from now, if if if, 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 if Likud gets five more seats 11 days from now than Labor, you would not be shocked. None of that would surprise you. I would not be shocked that when people go into the polling booth, they ultimately have to make a decision. And I think often decisions on security. Look, there is a there is a fatigue factor. And Netanyahu has been in there eight years, and, and people say they don't want him, but they, they haven't decided that there's anybody better. But that's why uh, um, Herzog and the Zionist camp have moved up and were, were close. But Netanyahu did gain at least one and in some polls two seats. The latest poll today, I think, shows him at 23-23. So it's, very, it's going to fluctuate a great deal. And, and people you know, who speculate based on, on a particular poll, I think, are going to find themselves disappointed because it will change you know, over the next couple of days, uh, every day. How about how about the members of the United States, the Senate and House? How many of them, what percentage, were sitting there saying, you know what, this is great rhetoric, it's an important security discussion, it's very important to remain a top topic, but, you know, with the leadership we have now, basically we're going to have to cave in and, and understand that Iran is going to be on its way to uh, having a nuclear bomb. Well, I think less after the speech, but primarily those who were convinced were, were re- reaffirmed. Those who were opposed probably remain opposed. It, but the people in the Senate, the undecided, may have been influenced, and especially his broader picture, the human rights violations, the danger to the region, the support of terrorism, things that we know and, and we talk about, uh, you know, and the, the growing uh, encirclement of the Middle East, and citing what happened in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, which we did on this show months ago already. And, and now we, we see reports even that uh, the spreading influence in, in, in uh, Iraq, in 
certainly in Syria, but the military influence that even the U.S. Uh, has spoken, officials have spoken this week about what's going on in Tikrit, where, where Soleimani, the head of the Iran Revolutionary Guard himself is present, where you see uh, Afghani Shiite, Afghani refugees from the Hazara people um, are, are fighting now in, in, um, uh, in, ter- in Iraq. And their leader, who's one of the most important pro-Iranian militia leaders, was killed uh, last week there. I mean, we're seeing many things, um, and I think that uh, what the speech will do um, will have to be determined when we face certain decisions. One was the move this week by McConnell, Mitch McConnell, well-intentioned move to move up the the, the, the um, discussion of the new legislation on additional sanctions, which Menendez opposed and other Democrats because they said they had given their word, and now the Republicans backed off and are going to let it go till the 24th. Uh, I think that that probably is a better decision because they want to have the broadest number, and moving it up would have meant that you would uh, diminish the numbers of senators that would have been uh, in support of the, of that legislation, and I think the the, um, the he, he he rightly pointed out the images that people have to see, and that you see Iran's transformation from a radical Islamic state to a military dictatorship. You know, with the uh, Khamenei is very sick; he's in a hospital. Some people say deathly ill, uh, supposedly with prostate cancer that has spread, um, and the whole question of succession has suddenly come up. Uh, the uh, but but what is clear is that the RGC Iran Revolutionary Guard is is it's going to, the leader will come from there or at least with their approval and that you're not going to get better but the question is what direction it will take and that could influence not only the negotiations but everything Iran is doing and it's very aggressive stands throughout the region. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. We want to welcome those tuned in on the Nahum Siegel Network app anywhere around the world. We appreciate it very much on this Shushan Purim morning. Don't forget, Monday starts Fundraising Marathon 2015, our two-week affair each and every year. And we ask you to keep this great radio station and wonderful radio program going for yet another year. By the way, did you notice, this was pointed out to me by a listener, did you notice the... Um, in the speech, and now of course I can't find it. Uh, in the speech, he uh, he talks about how the leader of Iran tweets, how he tweets his anti-Semitic messages, and essentially alludes to the fact that if he's tweeting, it's not meant for the people of Iran. Yeah, because Iran doesn't have a free internet. Right. He says, <laughs> you, you know, in Iran there isn't exactly free internet, but he twi- tweets in English that Israel must be destroyed. So he knows who his audience is, and he certainly uh, wants to make sure that we get the message. That's uh, that's for sure. And, um, and, he, and and many of them, it's not just he, that many of them, uh, uh, we saw that uh, Ali Shirazi, who's one of the senior clerics, uh, said, we'll raise the flag of Islam over the White House. Over the White House. And... Uh, and, and yet, and that message goes out, not only to people of Iran, but also, but mostly for Western audiences right. to see. Hey, can I tell you a couple of problems I have with the speech? Sure. I don't like when 
when a Jewish leader points out that um, that the six million murdered by the Nazis was not merely a Jewish problem. I, I think I think it's sometimes very important to remind everybody that in fact the the Nazi effort was a war against the Jews, and yes, were tens of millions of others certainly you know murdered, and did many other people suffer because of it? Yes, but that was a war against the Jews, and sometimes it it, it frightens me when people try to defer that identity of the Nazi effort. Am I right or wrong? I think in this case, he, his purpose was to show. That while the Jews may be the first victims, we're never the last. You know, the whole idea that we're the barometer, the canary in the mine, right. all those terms, which I also reject because I'm tired of being the, the, the canary in the mine. I'm tired of them being so good at memorials right. that have a problem with living Jews. And I think the universalizing of the Holocaust, which is not what he did, uh, is a problem. I think in this context, his message to the members of Congress was you may see seven million Jews in, in Israel uh, as being the potential victims now, but it's the whole region, it's the whole area. I mean, you saw that the Sisi in Egypt proposing now a joint uh, uh, Arab uh, force because they have no confidence in the West and because they're worried about what will happen to them, and that's a country of 90 million people. Mm-hmm. And and we see it, you know, throughout the, uh, the Middle East, and what really motivated them more than Iran was the disappointment with that, according to the reports, with the the conference that was held at the White House on countering violent extremism, when they saw that there was no global strategy on terror and no real effort to to mobilize, that was what drove him to make this proposal now, and and as I understand, they're moving ahead. He went to the Saudis, he's gone to others, um, but the... um, they said that the conference didn't go as expected, let alone their disappointment with the inability to stand up to what they see happening in, with regard to Iran. And also, I get a little nervous when the Prime Minister of Israel, in, in trying to describe the way the United States and Israel cooperate, uh, starts citing examples, uh, starts talking about the, uh, you know, the, the, the summer Iron Dome and, and other instances in recent Jewish history where the United States has been there for Israel. I, I don't know, I get uncomfortable when he starts to cite examples as if we're desperately trying to find, uh, you know, specific episodes where, in fact, we were cooperating. It sometimes makes people think, well, maybe maybe in reality, you know, behind the scenes there isn't as much cooperation as we think. What do you think of that? I, I thought a lot about it. Obviously, I, I think he overdid it a little bit, maybe, according to people, you know, I spoke to even some members of Congress, uh, but the point was to show Hakar Satov, to show appreciation, and to try to downplay the, the uh, rift, the public rift between the United States and Israel, which serves nobody's purpose, neither country's purpose. Um, but you can't paper over what was said, in the, in, including the reaction, at which many people cited as immature or inappropriate, um, from the White House saying, we didn't see the speech, but we read it, and there's nothing new. Uh, I would, if I were them, I would have ignored it might have been a better tactic uh, but the there was nothing insulting there was nothing there i think that that should have been uh, a provocation uh, i think but i think netanyahu's point in doing that was there are a lot of things that you don't see nobody thinks about us aid in regard to the forest fire and he's trying to show how in fact the ties between these countries are so strong All right yeah i guess uh 
I guess that's true. Um, all right. Anybody uh, in Israel? I mean, I would assume that the media in Israel has uh, has completely used the speech, uh, you know, for their advantage, depending on on which side they're on. Those who are pro Likud obviously are using it that he's now a you know an enhanced Jewish leader with all this recognition, the most important legislative body in the world. And the others, I would guess, he's un- and we don't always see this. That's why I'm asking you because you get the reaction from Israel. I would assume he's under tremendous criticism by some for even appearing in Washington and even making the speech to begin with. Well, the, the polls show that it's, uh, it's pretty close split on that question in, in Israel, but the, the reaction to the speech was very positive. It does not necessarily translate into the bump in the polls that you were looking for, but, you know, Israelis face a lot of critical issues. For them, the, the content was new because he has said it, to them before, right. as I said, it takes on much more significance given Khamenei's illness and the the potential implications of a transition or uh, what could happen short term or or uh, longer term. I think what what impressed many more was this, this these reports that the administration is going to make a, another push for peace before the end of uh, the president's term and. Um, the announcement by the PA, the Palestinian Authority, actually by the Palestinian Central Council, which is PLO, uh, calling for an end to security cooperation with Israel. And while no change on the ground supposedly so far, uh, it's up to Abbas to, to implement this decision, which obviously the U.S. and others oppose, and it's based on Israel withholding the tax revenue. But those kind of things, I think, get more of an immediate uh, um, reaction in Israel because it's something uh, that they face every day, and we will see whether there, there's any truth in their concern about the renewed tunnels again by Gaza in Gaza, and the reports of rearming and that, that they're going to double their numbers of number of uh, missiles, and that Egypt is shifting its focus and its troops from the Sinai because they have bigger problems along the Libyan border and the. Uh, the Sudanese border, these issues get attention because they pose much more immediate, uh, could have much more immediate consequences uh, um, than, uh, you know, than looking at the Iran issue, which people are waiting to see what the outcome of the negotiations will be. Right. I hate to focus on this again, but just that you, you said you were looking at some of the Democrats and the par of reaction, as we would call it. So someone like Nancy Pelosi sat there and, did, and in fact, did not applaud through most of the speech. I know there were times that everybody could right. applaud and stand up, but through most of it would just sit there. Was there a large percentage of the whole that was just sitting there? Well, the, the, the diplomatic corps obviously never applauded. Right. That's protocol. So people saw that and thought that was with Democrats because they're to the to the other side of the Democrats uh, towards the wall. The um, there were two or three rows where I would say the majority sat through most of it, did applaud at different points, especially when he praised the president and when he spoke about the future and his uh, references to Elie Wiesel. But there were some who didn't even get up for that. Nancy Pelosi did. Uh, from what, what the times I, I looked at her, I was focusing on, on a number of people. And by the way, there were reports that Charlie Rangel didn't come. He did come. I saw him there. Yeah, we saw him also, right? And, uh, you know, he was attacked by some saying he walked out, he walked in, he walked out. I have no evidence that's true. I've asked if anybody saw him walk out. And uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Yvette Clark all deserve credit. 
because of the pressures that were brought to bear on them, heavy uh, pressures, and yet they came, and people should write them today and thank them and say we appreciate the fact that you were there to hear the message because, you know, we criticize and people put pressure on them to go. It's important to say, call as their offices, doesn't take much of an effort, and just say thank you and that we want them here because they, some of, one of them told me that the messages they were receiving were 80 to 20 against going to the speech wow. because the others do it and we sit on our hands and the people who care about Israel and care about the this issue of Iran often sit on their hands so and, and you know that the American people are with us we know them from all of the polls post speech that show uh, you know this overwhelming uh, references to to uh, Iran being seen unfavorably as a danger I mean American people get it. And I think the the uh, and see it as a survival issue for Israel to, to a large degree. What's the deadline? When will it be announced? When will this deal finally be consummated? Well, if they consummate it, it will be on the twenty fourth. The reports that they're moving ahead, as you know, uh, there's another round coming up, and Zarif and Kerry and met extensively. We'll have to see whether the uh, what the nature of the deal is. There's still differences. The question. Uh, to look for is what kind of intrusive inspection regime is there? What do they do about past military developments? What do they do about Parchin and the weaponization and the missiles, which are not covered by the agreement? Is there anything in there about that? Do they do they set a deadline? Is there a sunset clause, which I think most people now, nobody was discussing before. I think now the 10-year, because of the speech, the 10-year uh, proposal, which may have been just leaked and you heard that the president said that it will be double-digit numbers. I heard the same thing that uh, when Susan Rice spoke at the APAC, she said it will be more than 10 years. Uh, but the point is that in all that time, nothing gets dismantled, nothing gets taken apart, nothing is reduced. You, you leave it intact. And the idea that they can increase the 20% uranium with, when they're increasing the speed of the new centrifuges, they're on the eighth, uh, IR-8 already in the research, they'll be able to go from 5% to to 90% much faster than before, so the 20% becomes uh, less relevant. And people, I know these, these details may bore people in the audience, but these are life and death issues. These things are important. You've got to understand what, what is important in the proposals, in the changes, and the things that we're being told are good or bad, and, and what, what do they really mean um, if, if, uh, in the region, what they mean for Israel. Every detail is really significant. You know, it's funny because we were in, we were trying to have an influence, and I think we had a very very uh, active and positive influence on different schools to show the speech and to encourage your students to hear it mm-hmm. and to see it. And many did, and we heard from people. But at some point, I, I said this in the post speech analysis as well. At some point during the details, during the minutia in the middle of the speech, before we got to that point where I was waiting for the drama, I was saying to myself, "Oh, I feel so bad for some of those high schoolers who are pro- whose eyes are probably." glazed over listening to all these details and yet it's so funny how many people were angry or upset that he didn't say anything quote-unquote new that he didn't bring out even one or two points that had never been discussed or never had been discovered before and based on what you said earlier in this conversation you don't think that was his role was to go go into uh details of the negotiations and expose anything to the public 
And he did. You have to know how to read between the lines. If people are looking for a very specific detail, that that wasn't going to happen, and that that would have been a violation. They would have, and then they would have said he sabotaged the talks. Right. My eight-year-old grandson, Benjamin Bach, called me uh, on, at night, and clearly in his school in Yamna, and my another grandson in uh, 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 called me and said, "What? What does? What is the deal?" But when an eight-year-old or nine-year-old asks you, it shows how important it was that the schools watched it, yep. that the kids for the one time really understood that there's a really critical issue and that they could be proud to see a leader of Israel stand before the country, stand before the members of Congress. So forget about whether they know all the details or understand what happened with Iran. The fact that they made it relevant to them that and, and the degree to which you pushed it was very significant and uh, that even North Jersey, that that, Yamna, that other schools took the time. I guarantee you, the kids will get more of that out of that in the long run than whatever else they might have studied for that short time. It's very important, and it shouldn't end with this. Now should be the beginning of the discussion that young people should be talked to. You know, the Pew uh, uh, studies, which you know we've discussed in the past, some of their polls, they're neutral. They're uh, a neutral source. They say that Jews have been harassed in 77 countries. That's 40% of the world. And in Europe, in 76% of the countries. When anti-Semitism is growing, when the dangers to the world are growing, young people have to know, if we want them to be involved later, there has to be some basis, and that comes through education, and the schools can play a critical role at this point in helping to acclimate, not to scare them, but to arm them. That will will make a difference later on if we ignore them and say, oh well, we'll wait till they get to college or when they're yeah, they're more resilient than the adults. They're more resilient than the adults. <laughs> All the adults I speak to are panicking about the end of the world. The kids are taking everything in stride. That's true. And with the Israeli election, people should take the school should take the time to explain what it is about, what what is at stake, what are the different parties, how, who are the candidates. Let them know. Let them see so they, they relate to it, that they will find it more of interest. And when they see the reports, they will read them then. Malcolm, I can guarantee you this. The days when the Jewish people remained passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. We are no longer scattered among the nations, powerless to defend ourselves. We restored our sovereignty in our ancient home. And the soldiers who defend our home have boundless courage. For the first time in 100 generations, we, the Jewish people, can defend ourselves. Prime Minister Netanyahu on Tuesday. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. It was a very powerful line. It was, um, and he repeated it again, if you remember, that those days are over, and it got... A huge applause. Israel does not stand alone. And I know that America stands with Israel. And I can promise you, even if Israel has to stand alone, Israel will stand. How great is that? They, they, there were a lot of important lines in that speech. But because there were a lot, I think they got overlooked. And because people were looking, as you said before, for that little detail, that right. you know that they want inside information. As people stop me in the streets and all over and ask me, and I try. To avoid because, you know, those who know don't say and those who say don't know. Right. And in this case, really. Uh, but he didn't want to be, he wasn't looking for a provocation. He was looking 
to tell the truth. Why isn't Iran's naval exercises targeting an American warship a subject of congressional debate, discussion, condemnation? Why isn't there more of a reaction to the expanding influence to this uh, subjugation that they're threatening Bahrain now, they're threatening other countries? Uh, the Sudan will be the next country that they will put on their, their checklist of uh, the places they, they uh, conquered. And as I said, uh, Shirazi's comment is that the White House will be the next. I think these are very important. And we should not get caught up in rumors. You know, the one about that Obama was going to uh, said they would shoot down Israeli jets. Yeah, what was that? In uh, 2014. I mean, <laughs> White House denied that report. It was in the Kuwaiti newspaper originally. Uh, I, at the time, there were such reports that uh, such about such threats, but as you see, the administration issued a total denial of of it, and no Israeli has confirmed uh, that report. Yeah, well, yeah, that one's a hard that that one was a hard one to believe, frankly, to begin with. Uh, but you know what? It's nobody po- talks about the good news that Israel and Jordan signed almost a billion dollar deal. I think it's eight hundred million dollars to build a desalination plant in Aqaba that will. Bring, and they will bring water from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea. They will split the desalinated water, and that Israel will double the water from the Sea of Galilee to Jordan, and that this will have a revolutionary impact on, uh, on that area, number one, saving the Dead Sea from death, uh, resuscitating the <laughs> Dead Sea, I guess, and more importantly, creating many, many jobs, and that the number of Palestinians working in Israel in the last four years doubled. There's almost 92,000 working every day there. Those things never get mentioned. You never see a report on it, you know, in the, in the New York Times or other papers. That's really significant development. Yeah, no question about it. Well, that's it. Shushan Purim morning. This is the certainly a good time of year to remember how uh, the one above keeps a close eye on all of us, and we are we were represented well. Uh, by the Prime Minister of Israel this week. Next week, it's Fundraising Marathon 2015. We are going to try to convince Malcolm Honline to join us live in studio. If not, he'll certainly be with us live via telephone. Malcolm, have a wonderful Shushan Purim and a fantastic Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. And remember the lesson of Purim. We will overcome when there's achtos, when there's unity amongst the Jewish people. No question about that. Thank you. 25 minutes after 8 o'clock, it's a Friday morning. Erev Shabbos at JMNAM.